word that God says this. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Heavenly Father, now I just uh, ask you to be with me this morning, Lord, as I bring your word forward, Lord. I ask you to be with those hearing it, Lord, that it reached in their hearts as well, Lord, that we do as your word says. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, these verses we just read about, um, just read now, and um, he talked about the church in unity. And us in unity with one another and having one voice for God. We see through these verses and other verses that unity is a very high priority for God. Paul begins in chapter 15 of Romans by stating that the strong in faith have an obligation to the weak. Now, what does Paul mean by we who are strong and those who are weak? Obviously, in our culture, we think of it differently. Strong is somebody who's self-reliant, doesn't need anybody else, pulls himself up by his bootstraps, doesn't show emotion, doesn't lay his problems on somebody else. The weak are those who are not self-reliant. They look for someone else to carry them. They bear the souls and they lay prostrate if, they be, if life becomes unbearable. And that's pretty much how our culture differentiates, excuse me, differentiates between strong and weak. To understand Paul's meaning of strong in context, we need to go back to chapter 14. In verse 1 of chapter 14, Paul states, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but do not quarrel over opinions. Paul goes, Paul goes on to say that the strong should not despise the weak, and the weak should not judge the strong. God will be the judge of everyone when we stand before him. 13th verse, Paul tells us not to pass judgment on one another any longer, but decide, but decide not to be a stumbling block or a hindrance in any way to a brother. Paul states that he is persuaded in Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in and of itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it is unclean. Basically, if their conviction is that it's unclean, then it's unclean for them. Remembering in um, Romans 15.1, Paul counts himself among the strong in faith when he says, we who are strong. Now, I think we can all agree that Paul was pretty strong in the faith. I don't think anybody's going to argue that. He states that he is persuaded in the Lord that nothing in itself, uh, nothing is unclean in itself. So therefore, Paul is saying that the strong in faith are the ones whose conscience is free from so many rules that others might feel compelled to follow. Paul does does say that everyone has their convictions or scruples that they must live with. And they should not be divided over these things. He says in uh, 14.5 that one esteems one day better than the other. Talking about the Sabbath. 
or others esteem every day as given by the Lord. And all days are alike. One thinks that you should not eat certain things and another has no issues with food provided by God. Paul tells us that we are each honoring God by our conviction. Paul goes on to say that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or drinking, but of righteousness, of peace and joy in the spirit. And what he says is everything he says in verse 20, he states, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong to make another stumble because of what you eat. The faith you have, keep between you and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Paul explains to these mature Christians that they should keep this faith, that they are free to eat and drink these things between themselves and God. He's not saying that they should keep their faith in Christ to themselves. He's just saying that, You're not going to be pointing these things out to people who have other convictions. Rather, that the strong faith Christians should also listen to their conscience. If they do, they will be blessed and have no reason to condemn themselves for publicly approving something that might cause another person to stumble. However, those of weaker faith who do not feel free to eat or drink the same things must not violate their conscience. He said they must continue to not consume those things until they are truly convinced that they're free in Christ to do so. Otherwise, they will be condemned for that sin. That's Romans 14, 23. That's why Paul has said to stronger Christians that they must be willing to stop and eating otherwise, that they're otherwise free to consume, if it's going to lead your brother and sister to sin against their own convictions. If we do things that cause our brother to stumble, boasting of our freedom in Christ, then we sin because we're not doing it in love. The strong in faith who Paul refers to in chapter 15 are those whose conscience is not so frail that they can't live freely in matters of conviction. The strong is someone who is mature in Christ. They trust fully that their salvation, their salvation is 100% because of the completed work of our Lord Jesus Christ. This example of strength flies in the face, obviously, of our culture. In Christ, we're strong when we're fully relying on Jesus Our strength is understanding our total weakness. Living freely in our weakness, knowing that Jesus has this. And we don't have to be burdened with every fear of failure. You know, when you were a child, you trusted your parents. Okay, I hope you still trust your parents. But, But your dad would pick you up and he'd throw you in there. And of course, it was scary. But you believed that you were going to be caught. And you didn't pay any attention to your mother over there gasping for air as she was telling your dad to be careful. You know, you you weren't worried about anything. You didn't worry about what food you're going to eat. You didn't worry about whether your clothes were going to be washed. I still don't worry about that. Um, you don't worry about, um, you know, what you're going to do. You run around just free. That's why most little kids run around like they have no clue what's going on. You know, they're just happy in their freedom. And um, they know what's right and wrong, but they don't stop, you know, every step of their lives to see if they possibly might break some rule. They live freely within the overall guidance of their parents. This is a freedom we should be enjoying as Christians with the knowledge that Jesus secured our salvation and that we can freely, knowing that we don't have to be perfect, that our effort doesn't affect our destination. Our faith in Christ does.
So being strong is understanding that living free in our liberties afforded by Christ and depending on totally on Christ. Do you remember the theme, step on the crack and break your mother's back? Everybody remembers that, right? You'd walk down the road and you're almost stumbling not to step on a crack. Um, I know that's difficult in Monsville, you know, with all the trees that are breaking up the sidewalks. But it is, it, it, you know, this is a great metaphor for people who are having trouble leaving it, living in their freedom afforded by Jesus. Our walk in Christ is a lot more difficult, you know, when we uh, take our focus off the gospel itself and put it on some conceived meritorious standing with God. We worry about every little mistake. We beat ourselves up for it. And sometimes the hardest person to forgive is the person we see in the morning, in the mirror each morning. One Bible commentator stated this. He said, to bear the weakness of fellow believers is not simply to tolerate those weaknesses, but to carry them. Not being critical or condescending and by showing respect for sincere views or practices that we may not agree with. This is what Paul is talking about in chapter 14 when he tells us not to cause our brothers to stumble because they may be less mature Christians. In verse 1 of Romans 15, we are told we have an obligation. We owe it to the weaker Christian to bear with the failings of the weak. And that failings is the inability to rest in Christ with their Christian freedom rather than live live in such a way that they're not controlled by the fear of messing up. Therefore, if our brother's conscience or scruples about something, whether it be about something to eat, drink, honoring the Sabbath, butts up against our liberty afforded to us by Christ, is incumbent on the strong or the mature Christian to bear the conviction of the weaker brother. And why? For his edification. In verse 2, chapter 15, Paul again, referring back to 14, reminds us to please our neighbors rather than ourselves. Therefore, in context, we become others-centered. Not doing the things that would cause our brother to stumble, even though the actual actions might not be sinful. We are to walk in unity with our brothers in Christ. In Corinthians 10.23, Paul says this, All things are lawful, but all, all things, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up or edify. By being other-centered, we forego some things for the edification of others. The Christian impulse is not self-pleasing. It says, for, because of this, Christ did not please himself. Verse 3. And the litmus test of whether you should do something and, or eat something and, or do something in front of your brother, the litmus test should be this. Does it edify? And are you doing it in faith? Paul states that anything outside of faith is sin. I knew someone years back um, that thought the Smurfs were evil. Or rather, the cartoon about the Smurfs were evil. I don't know if you remember the Smurfs. They were these little blue, look like Keebler elves running around the little village. Now, I don't know if they still believe that, but at the time they did. Now, as a Christian, if they came with their family on Saturday morning to my house, guess what cartoon I shouldn't be watching with them? I shouldn't be turning on the Smurfs. Because I believe like they believe? No. Because I don't want to be divided over opinions. It's not a matter of saying, oh, you're, you're, you're just doing this, you know, to be one way. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to necessarily agree with them, but I'm not going to do something that's going to make them stumble. I don't have to agree with them. I don't have to change my appetite for things that I believe God has 
freed me from or afforded me. Paul states in Romans 14.6, So do not let what you agreed, what you regard as good be spoken of evil. If my brother, if he wants me to verbally agree with him on rules and restrictions that Jesus has freed me from, I'm not going to do that. But I will refrain from liberties in the presence of my brother for his good and for his edification. And because I love him. And as the Bible says, for the glory of God. Philippians 2, 3, 8 says this. Do nothing from self-ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this in mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even the cross, even death on the cross. That's the reasoning, because Christ showed us the example that we are to be other-centered. Because we love them, and it glorifies God. Paul then states, As it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Paul is referencing Psalm 69.9. This Psalm of David is a prayer of Jesus in his sufferings on earth. Let us look at this Psalm in its entirety. Here's what it says in its entirety. For zeal for your father's house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Excuse me, I try my mouth. The disciples remembered this first clause in the psalm when Jesus overturned the temp- tables in the temple. Do you remember that? And there's the money changers, Jesus flipping over the tables. Why did he do that? Just what this says. For the zeal of his father's house. He said, it's consumed me. Can you imagine being like that? That you're consumed by God and the zeal for what he wants. That's what, he's, that's what we're supposed to be. Our lives as Christians should be led for our zeal for God and the gospel. Our strength defined by our, our ability to live freely in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. Not in the fragileness of our conscience. Paul's use of Psalm 69.9 in this text is meant to recall the suffering of Jesus on our behalf during his earthly ministry. Because his zeal for God controlled his life. Rather than pleasing himself and doing what he could have and had the right to do as God's son. He bore the reproach for God's sake on behalf of those whom he suffered and died. And who's that? The church. Paul was referencing Jesus as an example of the fact that those who are strong should bear with those who are weak. The example is what he is commanding in verses 1 and 2. This is exactly what Jesus did for us. He bore reproach, understood our weakness, carried our burdens. And this is what we should do as believers for each other. And I know it can be tiresome. You can get beat up and get discouraged dealing with others and putting others before yourself. Preacher told a story of two boys, Kevin and Brian. Kevin was eight, Brian was six. And their mother one morning, she's making pancakes, and the two boys were arguing over who should get the first pancake. The mother thought, well, this is a perfect opportunity to talk to them about Jesus, who would obviously give the other first. And so she says to her boys, now boys, what would Jesus do? 
He would certainly let the other one have the first pancake. The boys lowered their head. And Kevin, being the oldest, looked at his brother and said, Brian, you be Jesus. (laughs) That's our first inclination, isn't it? (laughs) Romans 15 and verse 4, that whatever, this is what Paul says, whatever was written in the former days, they didn't have the gospel then, so what was written in the former days? The Old Testament, yeah. So what's written in your, the former days, it was written for our instruction that through endurance and through encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Paul had just referenced the scriptures in Psalm 69. And now he, now he observes that all scripture, whatever was written in the former days, is there for us to look to endurance and encouragement that we might have hope. You know, this is how we should look at the Old Testament. For hope. You know, since the Old Testament points us to Christ... And he's our hope and what he's accomplished for us. Look at some of these people in the Old Testament and how they how their lives should be encouraging us. Here's Joseph sold into slavery by his brothers. He trusts God. In the end, in the the end, he comes out second in command of all Egypt, only behind Pharaoh. Then there's Abraham who trusts God. He leaves his home, starts heading in a direction, not knowing where he's going, not knowing what's in front of him, not knowing any pitfalls. He just does it fully in trust. You know, today, if we don't have our GPS and we don't know exactly the route and we don't know what the detours are, we don't even want to leave our driveway. You remember getting the triptychs years ago? Some of you guys don't remember that. Trip away used to make these triptychs you'd flip and they, and you could take that thing with you on your travel. Well now, then we came out with the GPS and, you know, the Garmin's and now we have everything on our phone. We don't even need those. We, like I said, we don't, we don't like to go anywhere without we're going. We don't know exactly the route and we don't know how many Chick-fil-A's are along the way. You know. And then there's Moses. Right? Here's Moses who runs away from Egypt in disgrace, marries a sheep herder in her father's house, you know, and he uh, thinks he's just going to settle down to a quiet life. He gets a call from God who manifests himself in this burning bush and tells Moses, you're going to lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt after 400 years of bondage. Moses, like, slow of speech, is like, uh, he starts pointing out all the disqualifications he has for doing this. But in the end, he trusts God. And then he sees these miracles. I mean, these ten plagues. He sees this pillar of fire. He sees the, the sea parted. And then Moses leaves over three million Israelis, Israelites out of Egypt and into the promised land. The, old, the, the writings of the former days, the Old Testament, is just replete with examples of how we can be encouraged by just ordinary people who God chose. And God the Father again and again showed patience, endurance with his people. Endurance, finishing races, Paul calls it, requires encouragement. And encouragement comes from hope. And hope from the word of God. Remember, our hope is not a, gee, I hope this has happened. Gee, I hope my team wins. Now, our hope is in Christ is a confident expectation of what will happen. We walk as sojourners in this land... It's foreign to us, but we have a common expectation that one day we'll be at home with our Lord. That's our hope. Our studying the word of God increases our hope and brings us to a better understanding of God. And it brings us to a maturity in Jesus Christ. 
It strengthens us. Our focus by studying the scriptures conforms our mind and allows us to see the necessity of unity that God desires for all his people for his glory. Paul then prays that God of endurance and encouragement, God reveals himself throughout the scriptures that he is a God of endurance and encouragement. That the God of endurance and, and encouragement grant you, through grace, to live in such harmony with one another. Notice the word such, that we live like-minded, in agreement with how God would want us to live, in harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus. Together that you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Look how these words in verses 5 and 6 build on top of each other. Harmony. One another. Together. With one voice. With Christ. The oneness of the body of Christ is granted to the church by God as we focus together on how Christ revealed to us in the scriptures. We are to have the oneness in the church to glorify God. I heard a pastor state that God uses the word body instead of family because families can be easily separated. The body, however, doesn't function well if every part decides to go its own way. If your one leg goes this way and your other leg goes this way, it's not a good thing. I know some people might do that in the way they dance, but um, but it does, obviously... God is looking to us to be unified in the body with Christ as the head of that. Several years back, I was uh, in a musical that the Strand Theater put on at John Marshall. It was the Music Man, written by Meredith Wilson. And um, we had a lot of really talented people from the valley that were in this. Just had beautiful voices. But it was the barbershop quartet that got the most applause, the most adoration. People just marveled over them. And it was easy for because you had these completely separate voices. You had the lead, the tenor, the bass, the baritone. And they were harmonizing so well together. Completely different voices, but beautifully harmonizing together. It was awe-inspiring. And they were described as the quartet. Wasn't the quartet great? They were described as one unit. Four different people harmonizing, bringing forth a wonderful melody. Likewise, we as Christians have both gifts and liabilities that are different from each other. We are called to be in harmony with each other, to bear one another, to encourage, to endure with one another for a single purpose. To the glory of God in heaven with a single voice. That's the church. Last week I, w- I was driving and it was strange. I, I flipped on the radio and the Rush Limbaugh show was on and this man calls in. And he He's telling uh, Rush, he said, you know, I often wonder by why we're put here. And well, of course that perked my ears up. He said, I thought a lot about it. And he said, I've come to the conclusion that we're put on this earth to encourage each other. He had it partly right. He's right. As Christians, we are. We're we're. We're put on this earth to encourage each other. But that's not the purpose. That's the action because of the purpose. The purpose is for the glorification of God through his gospel. Jesus glorified the father by the perfect sacrificial life he lived on earth. His zeal for his father's house is what moved him and what should motivate us. You know, who are we if we're not one voice as a church? If we're not harmonious for the zeal of God? 
were then but like clanging cymbals in this giant cacophony of noise, trying to rise above each other so that we can be heard. How does that glorify God? Our human nature is to advance our own opinion in church matters, to dig our heels in and ensure that our voice is not only heard, but it's followed. You know, we run the risk of damaging and thus the church when our opinions outweigh our desire to live harmonious with each other by putting others' preferences before our own. You know, social media has really, it's been a good thing and a bad thing. We, we see so many times where people are so easy to get on there and say something to someone else on Facebook that they wouldn't otherwise say in front of them. Or I guess outside of social media, they might whisper it to somebody else. How is that harmonious? The church is to sound like a perfect choir to God. Harmony. We're different. We have different gifts. You know, we have different callings. They're strong and they're weak people. But we're supposed to have one, one melody, one voice, supernatural, spiritual unity. And that's achieved as we look to the Word together. We're encouraged by the Spirit to endure by our ever-increasing hope. This should help us understand why Paul, at the beginning of the text, calls for strong bearing the weak. Our ability to bear what is reproachable, reproachful, excuse me, about each of us as Jesus bore reproach for our sake. It's crucial that we have harmony and melody in the church. And we are called to it. Why? For the glorification of the Father in heaven. Therefore, the strong or mature Christian who understands their freedom in Christ should carefully consider his brothers and what his convictions he has in bearing with him, supporting him as he grows and discovers his own freedoms as well. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 22 to 23, To the weak I've become weak to win the weak. I've become all things to all people that I may be by all means save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. We are different. We're all different from each other. You know, we come from different backgrounds, different educations, different upbringings, different jobs. We might even have slight differences, you know, in, uh, in what we believe, you know, uh, even in do- some small doctrinal things. But in the basic tenets of Christianity, we believe the same. Our God, one God, exists eternally in three distinct persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Jesus was sent by the Father to be born a virgin, lived a perfect sacrificial life, died for our sins, and was fully resurrected in body and spirit. He sits at the right hand of the Father, and He will come again to bring His people to Himself. Discord in the church damages everyone's ability to endure hope. God has something better revealed to us in the gospel of His Son. We should remind ourselves over and over again if necessary, and it is necessary. What is our purpose as a church? The advancement of the gospel here on earth. And how's that done? By being others-centered, bearing one another, enduring, encouraging each other through the word of God, which is our hope. By coming together in one voice, Looking past the reproach that each of us deserve, but rather living in lives for the zeal of the Father in his house. And the purpose, Paul says, for the glory of God. 
We then benefited individually as a church by walking in unity with each other. However, we must walk in unity in the truth. I mean, we could walk in unity in a lie. But when it comes to the gospel, there is no compromise. We must not be unified by adding or taking away anything from the gospel. Walking in unity requires sacrifice. We know that Jesus sacrificed. In fact, he gave up his life here on earth. But what does sacrifice genuinely look like for us? Most likely, it's probably just denying our preferences. Preferences that have nothing to do with the gospel. Jesus lived and died and was resurrected for the church, the body of believers that would advance the gospel. We come to Christ as individuals. We advance the message of our Savior when we collectively, the church, sing from the same hymnal. Our unity as a church body working in perfect harmony with each other for the gospel provides a melody to our Father in heaven that is pleasing to him and glorifies him. In the 17th chapter of John, Jesus, this is the night before he was crucified, prays to his Holy Father for his disciples. And not only for them, but for those who would come to him through them. You want to talk about other-centered? Here's Jesus is more concerned about us than he is his own life. Look at uh, verse 17. So John 17, 17. Sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who would believe in me through their word. That is really cool. That line there. Jesus, while he was on earth, prayed for you and me. First time I that it was like an epiphany to me, a light bulb clicked on. It was like, wow. That's really cool. Jesus prayed for me. I know he's intercessing all the time, but this is why he was on earth. He prayed for you and I. She says, I, I, and for their sake I consecrate myself and they also may, also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who would believe in me through their word. That they all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. you think unity is important to God? If that's Jesus' prayer before he's about to be handed over to be crucified, I believe the answer is a resounding yes. Unity is a high priority. This is a prayer God just, Jesus prayed to his heavenly father. Jesus points out that we are to be in God as one for the sole purpose that the world believes that the God sent, that God sent the son. What's that mean? For the sake of the gospel. That's the reason we need to be in unity. And Paul in Romans 15, 7, And that last verse of our text puts an exclamation point and ties verses 1 through 6 together when he says, Therefore, because of everything I just mentioned, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For the glory of God. That's why we need to be unified. Let's pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, Lord, I am just so thankful for who you are. Because, Lord, we are so imperfect. We make so many mistakes. We stumble, we fall. But, Lord, you give us a freedom. You give us a freedom afforded by what you did on the cross, Lord. Lord, we come to the Father through you because of what you did. Nothing but what we did. But we know that our works are as filthy rags. But, Lord... The Heavenly Father sees righteousness to us because of your righteousness, not because of anything we did. Lord, we fall prostrate before you. Lord, we need you 100%. We rely on you 100% for our salvation. We understand that. We pray that our brothers and sisters who are struggling so hard with that, Lord, we pray that you bring them to a maturity in Christ through your word, that they may live free and understand who you are in their life. We just thank you, Lord. We thank you for the mature Christian. We thank you for those that are young in Christ, Lord. We just thank you for all people who come to you. We thank you for them. Lord, help us to be united. Help us not look at the petty things that are in our lives. That's so easy for us to fall back on, to look at ourselves and say, we have the right answer. This one doesn't. Help us to be united in Christ. For your gospel's sake, so that people will believe that you sent your son, so that people will believe the gospel. Help us to be harmonious, to lift up as one voice a sweet melody that's pleasing to you, Lord. And we can only do that through unity. We pray these things in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.